Father, we come before you as your people, and in this act of giving back to you, it is our worship, it is our thankfulness, it is our gratefulness that every good thing has come from your hand. You alone are our provider. And so would you take these, our gifts and our offerings, our tithes, what you have asked us to give, Lord, as we give them back to you in gratefulness and in obedience, would you take and bless them? Would you use them according to your purposes and for your glory? And Lord, cause our hearts to trust in you as our provider. Through this life, there's so many messages from the world around us that that we don't have enough, that we need more, uh, their security is always called into question. Lord, keep our eyes from drifting from you as the one who holds us and will keep us and will deliver us from this life and this world and make us glad to be your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This is God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets." Who were before you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, would you now do as only you can do and speak your word to us? Open our hearts and our minds that we may hear you. Give us ears to hear and give us joyful hearts to receive your word. And let your word find its purpose. As you have promised, it will not return void. And so we come to you today with great expectation that your word will indeed find its, its mark. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Each week as we gather for worship in our church, we follow a liturgy. It includes a number of elements. The, the, the flavor of the elements change, but the elements themselves are consistent. For example, we have a declaration of the law. Now, we, we do that once a month, the week before communion in preparation for the Lord's table, but there's also a declaration of the law every time we read scripture, so it's in our liturgy, liturgy every week. We have the confession of sin in our liturgy every week. We have the promise of the gospel in our liturgy every week. And so when you, for some Christians who, when they come to our church, it's the first time they've experienced that kind of liturgy. It may seem new. And in so doing, week after week, as the weeks go on, they may feel a sense of heaviness Uh, particularly in the reading of law or the confession of sin. It may become, uh, in a sense, drudgery. Like, why do we do this? But the reality of the gospel cannot be fully understood or fully appreciated without first seeing God's holy standard 
and then confessing that we have both transgressed that standard and we have failed to measure up to it. Seeing these should actually move us to worship, to make our hearts glad, to remember what it is we've been saved from. In other words, the gospel is all the more glorious each week as we recognize and dwell on God's purity and righteousness, His glory as revealed in His law, and the deliverance from our sins. I mentioned last week in our introduction to the Beatitudes that there's progression, and we're going to see that more this week. There's a progression in the Beatitudes. We see the same in our practice of worship, that each week we profess our poverty of spirit. We come before God admitting that we are sinners. We mourn our sins. We confess them. We agree with God that our sins have broken His heart and have gone against His holy standard. And being moved in that attitude toward meekness, then we hunger and thirst for righteousness. As I said last week, the Beatitudes are not a list of accomplishments. They're not a checklist to follow. The attitude that is described that is called blessed in each of these and the promises that come with them are both gifts of God's grace toward us. They're not things that we do, but rather they are the transforming work that God does in us, conforming us into the image of His Son that we might more and more worship Him. That's what we were made for. That's what we gather together to do each week that we were made to worship our great and glorious God. And so I want us to see this as we continue through the Beatitudes this week, that this is not something that I'm, I'm, I'm burdened by that I have to go do. If you come to it with that attitude, you will always feel burdened because guess what? We never measure up. This is why we needed a substitute. We needed Jesus to obey perfectly in our place. Instead, may we see it as God's gracious gift to us and his transforming work in us so we might gladly receive it with hearts of worship. Looking now in verse 4, Jesus continues his sermon with this benediction, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want to say again by reminder, last week we did more of an introduction to the Beatitudes, so I'm not going to cover all the, the, the ideas that are represented in here as we move forward, but I do want to remind us of a few things, and that is the Sermon on the Mount is being directed toward believers. In other words, these promises are not universal. They are for those who have put their faith in Christ. And so the particular benediction or good word that's being spoken, blessed, uh, to those who mourn is, a, is being spoken about a specific type of mourning. Now, we know that as Christians, we will be comforted. We've all experienced that in, in life, probably, the comfort of Christ. We know that we will be perfectly comforted in heaven. We long for that, right? For every tear to be wiped away, for there be no more sadness, no more mourning. But this mourning that is being described here is one that progresses or grows out of the first beatitude. That is, we are poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit, that is, recognizing our own spiritual bankruptcy. When we come to the end of ourselves, then we begin to grieve over our sins, not just over our own sins, but as we read this morning in our confession, we grieve over the sins of others. We grieve over the sins in the world. We look out and we lament. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin brings many kinds or levels of mourning. We certainly, as we mourn our own sin, we, we recognize that sin is very dysfunctional. It leaves a wake in its path whenever we sin and we mourn that, the effects of our sin, the consequences of our sin, and so forth. We grieve the sins of, of those around us as we look uh, specifically about 
you know, in regard to how God's law has been transgressed when others go against what God has revealed is best for us, but also just in general, the fallen world, uh, not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, when we come across the effects of sin and how the world has been wrecked by sin. But ultimately, our spiritual bankruptcy leads us to mourn that our sins have saddened the heart of God, broken the heart of God. You may feel uncomfortable with that kind of language, that it's soft, that we shouldn't talk about God having a broken heart or being saddened. But we see God express grief throughout the Scriptures. And as we'll see later, we certainly see Jesus express grief. The psalmist said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Our sins grieve a holy God. And so as we sin or as we continue in sin, that sin then impairs our worship, which is why we must come to Him in confession. Now, when I say it impairs our worship, we're not talking about an impairment on God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. Talking about us, it impairs us. Now, because this mourning is both general and personal, we cannot reduce it to some kind of melancholy. Uh, Mourning isn't pessimism. Some of you uh, may be wired uh, like this. I can put myself in that category as as melancholy. And we, we like to be pessimistic from time to time, or maybe some like to do it all the time. If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, I think it was in the silver chair, Puddle Glum, the, the, the Marsh Wiggle who always found everything, you know, it was, it was, everything was always wrong. You know, nothing was ever good. The, the, even if there was something good, more bad was coming. That's not what this kind of mourning is being described. Pessimism, waiting on the other shoe to drop, isn't what is being described here. Weeping over sin is proper because sin goes against God himself. All that he has created for, it is opposed to him. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 119, 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because my people do not keep your law. We mourn because our sins and the sins of others break the law of God. Sin distorts our relationship with him through our own shame, through our calloused hearts, and through the separation that sin represents, that sin is opposed to God. And of course, sin brings on all kinds of negative consequences in our lives and in our relationships on this earth. So we mourn our own sin as we also do the sins of others, but never with attitudes of condescension. Instead, we come as fellow sinners with poverty of spirit, recognizing that there but for the grace of God go I. The promise to those who mourn in this beatitude is that they will be comforted. Just as the beatitude would include all mourning for the believer, it speaks to the specific type of mourning that is over sin. So the blessing of comfort also applies in a general way that they will be comforted, but specifically to the comfort that we will experience when we will be with our God forever. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We do know comfort in this life. Again, we could probably all give a testimony to the comfort of Christ that we've experienced at various points in our lives. But we also know that we have more griefs to face, that grief is a part of this life. We know that there are sorrows and pains. We know that even when we are comforted, that comfort wanes. We know that there are times where even though we think we've been comforted and something's over, a memory can come and bring something back and make it fresh and we grieve 
all over again. And so we need to be reminded that, that there is a comfort that is coming that is lasting, an eternal and complete comfort in Christ to those who trust Him. Ian Duguid writes, Mourning is a part of the in-betweenness of our present life. We live in between now and eternity. We are part of God's kingdom now, but we also live in a fallen world. We don't fit here, but neither do we fully experience the blessing of the world to come. But one day we will experience the fullness of the world to come. And then all our mourning will be taken away. On that day, we will be comforted. Therefore, we mourn in the present, but not as those who have no hope. We mourn rather because we have hope, but we do not yet see what we hope for. This in-betweenness or what we call the now and the not yet that he describes here is that tension that we all know in the walk of faith. We know what is true, and yet we, fully, we don't yet fully experience it. And so we press forward in faith until our faith becomes sight. I mentioned that Jesus mourned in his life on earth. We know this from his cry over the city of Jerusalem when he approached the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus also mourned over the effects of sin in general. Won't pick on any of our young people today, but what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept? Okay, all right. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35, right? We, uh, that's, the, that's Bible Trivia 101. We know that. Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Well, he was led to the body of Lazarus, his friend who was dead. And before he raised him from the dead, he, he wept over death. Jesus did not have sin personally over which to mourn, but he shows us that it is appropriate for the believer to grieve over sin, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. That's part of the reason why we mourn. This is just not how it's supposed to be when we see death, when we see sickness, when we see oppression, injustice, extortion, abuse, broken homes and relationships, people who are cut off and alone and on and on every day. We witness the evidence that our sin has been mar- or our world has been marred by sin. So as we think of this beatitude, note that it, it must begin first in our hearts, our own hearts first. If all you ever do is lament the sins of those bad people out there as you wag your finger, your motivation is not over sin, but over the fact that these things go against your preferences. Being poor in spirit leads us first and foremost, to mourn our own sin. And then as we mourn our own sin, like a ripple in the water, it moves out and expresses grief over the sin in the world. Let us remember the promise, though. We do not grieve as those without hope. We will be comforted. In verse 5, Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In one sense, meekness isn't all that far from poverty of spirit. We could say it's an effect or the result of, it's the outworking of the poverty, being poor in spirit or evidence of being poor in spirit. We're not describing pessimism. We're not describing despondency. We're not going to be marsh wiggles. We need to understand what these terms mean. First, the world sees meekness as weakness. And this is true if you ever try. Now, meekness is not one of those words that we use outside of Christian circles a lot. I mean, that's just not a word that's in our culture very much. But think of the word gentle. Gentle and meek are synonyms. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But 
most people don't want to be described as gentle. At least most men don't, right? It's not masculine. It's not strong. It's, it's weak. You may have heard the old quip, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with the rest of you. And that's kind of the way the world sees the idea of meekness, that of being some kind of doormat. But that is not biblical meekness. We look at Jesus, who is the ultimate example of meekness, and we find that he uses the term meek in one of the very few places that he describes his heart that we have recorded. He calls himself meek. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Since we don't use the word meek very often except in, 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 our, in our church circles, let me use the word gentle instead. When we describe someone who is being gentle, what, think of the context of how we use that word. It's usually in the context of someone who has the potential or the power to do harm, but they're restraining that power. Meekness is power in restraint. When we introduce a newborn to their toddler sibling, what do we tell the sibling? Be gentle. When, uh, if you're an employer and you have to let somebody go, what do you want to do? Let them down gently. If you're carrying food that's in a fragile container into church for the potluck, you hand it off to somebody and you say, be gentle with this because they have the power to break it and you don't want them to do that. So gentleness or meekness does not mean weakness, but rather power that is under control or self-controlled. So when it comes to the beatitude that Jesus is describing here, it is one that has come out of a heart that recognizes its own spiritual bankruptcy. It comes from being poor in spirit. It comes from a heart that has mourned its own sin so that as it encounters other people, it doesn't come to other people who have sinned with self-righteousness or contempt, nor with pity or condescension. Instead, it is the mindset that we are beggars who have found the bread of life and we're showing other beggars where to find the crumbs. It is the mindset of there, but for the grace of God, go I. It is the mindset that Jesus described in the parable that he told. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Meekness is not weakness, but rather I think it is a harmony of self-awareness and self-control. Now, when I say self-awareness and self-control, I'm not adopting the, the, the psychology terms of the world. But what I'm saying here is a fruit of the Spirit, that we know who we are and we know our status. By self-awareness, I'm saying that I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I know that I have no righteousness of my own, that I come before God bringing nothing to the table. It is only by sovereign grace that I am saved. And by self-control, I mean that it is restraint. Restraint from self-promotion, restraint from defensiveness, restraint from correcting others, restraint from always having to be the one who is right. 
How we handle criticism may be the best evidence of our meekness meter. How do we handle criticism? I can tell all of you right now that my desk is a mess. But if you come in and say, Seth, your desk is a mess. What do I do? I bristle up with defensiveness. I'm, I'm busy. I've got a lot. I know where everything is. This is this is a result of genius. I come up with all of my excuses, right? To, to, because I can say this about myself, but you can't say this about myself. How we handle criticism is a great barometer for our meekness. Consider how you respond to others. Look at your social media interactions. Look at those closest to you in your family. Ask them how you handle criticism. Are you a person that always has to be right? Another layer of meekness is that of considering our self-forgetfulness. It's what we see described in Philippians 2, a passage that's familiar that we, we put off our own interests and we put the others, interests of others before ourselves. It's the outworking of the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Meekness is being comfortable enough in our own skin, knowing that we are redeemed sinners. That's what I mean by that. Comfortable knowing that I'm a redeemed sinner so that I don't always have to take, I don't always have to control, and I don't always have to be right. We can forget ourselves considering others more important. The promise to the meek is that they will inherit the earth, and that is true, especially in an eschatological sense, that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will reign with Christ forever. But the word that's used here can be translated both earth and land. And I don't know why the translators, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have, you know, advanced degrees and so forth. I, 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 I'm not a smart guy. I don't know why they landed on this. I'm not going to purport an argument. I'm just going to say I prefer land over this, and I'll tell you why. I think Jesus had in mind Psalm 37. Listen to Psalm 37, verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land. Verse 22, for the blessed of the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep His way and He will exalt you to inherit the land. Now, for us, land and earth is not a problem. They don't, they're not opposed. They're, they're synonyms. We understand that. But just in terms of how in our current uh, you know, ESV kind of English days, I wish that they had chosen land instead of earth. Because when we think of the earth, Yes, it will include the whole earth in an eschatological sense, that's true. But the word land was so rich with meaning for Old Testament Jews. They had no land. They were enslaved in Egypt, and God promised them a land. Even before that, He promised to Abraham. But, and, and, and God did all of that, right? He brought them. He gave, promised it. He gave it to them. And what did they do with that promised land? They turned it into something worldly, a treasure. And what did God do? He made it temporary, took it away, and the exiles sent them off. It was never about a piece of real estate. Yes, in the now and not yet it was, but it wasn't permanently about a piece of real estate. All of this will be wiped away. The promised land is what we're looking forward to. Now, the world also wants to inherit the world or the earth, uh, to have it all here and now. Everybody wants to rule the world, the song says. As believers, it is so short-sighted when we get caught up in this mindset. And we fall into the same pattern when we go after earthly treasures. We have to remember that our hope is beyond the temporary 
and the temporal. Our hope is beyond the here and the now. Our hope is in the true and ultimate promised land that will never fade. In speaking of those who have died in the faith, the writer of Hebrews says, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The promise to the meek, those who know their weakness and use their power with control for the benefit of others, the promise is that they will inherit the land. So both the gift of meekness and the gift of the inheritance comes from God, like with all of the Beatitudes, who is growing in us by His grace, attitudes of meekness, and at the same time giving us a surety of our future. We know where we're going. The comfort in our own skin that I described about is is rooted both in our understanding of our poverty of spirit, that we bring nothing to the table, but our comfort in our own skin, our assurance, is also the fact that we know we have a sure future. We know where we're going. If we know we're going to be delivered, if we know that God is going to finish what he's begun, shouldn't that make us confident in him, assured in him, strengthened in him? And then that strength under control grows by grace and meekness to look more and more like Christ. As we recognize our own neediness, as we mourn over our own failures, as we live out self-forgetfulness, next we see that we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus uses terms in verse 6 to describe this beatitude that we can readily identify with, hunger and thirst. And maybe today, more than normal Sundays as we all are thinking about what's about to come or we smell the food. No matter where you are or who you are, you all know hunger and thirst because if you didn't, you wouldn't be alive for very long. They're both reminders that come to our attention several times every day to let us know that we need something. We need sustenance. Our bodies will not continue to run without it. And so in the same way, God is growing us in grace by giving us an increased desire for more. We all experience in this life spiritual ups and downs, and we've all had moments where we feel like our cup is overflowing, and yet we know that there will be a time where we don't feel that anymore. Our feelings change, our emotions change, our needs change, and God says we need to come back again and again, just as we do physically, to eat. Because every few hours our bodies remind us we need to drink something, we need to eat something. The same is true spiritually. Now, in all of the Beatitudes, we long for the ultimate fulfillment that's coming. But look at how this works to our benefit in the interim. Until the day comes that these Beatitudes are completely fulfilled, that the promises are completely ours, either in death or when Christ returns, these work in our, in our, in our uh, benefit because that longing brings us back to the table again and again. John Stott says, like all the qualities included in the Beatitudes, hunger and thirst are perpetual characteristics of the disciples of Jesus, as perpetual as poverty of spirit, meekness, and mourning. Not till we reach heaven will we hunger no more, neither thirst any more, for only then will Christ our shepherd lead us to springs of living water. Now, the righteousness that we hunger, that we thirst after, would certainly include our legal righteousness. There are different kinds of righteousness, that we, or types of righteousness, rather, that we could describe. One would be our legal standing, that we have been made right with God or justified, that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us uh, by faith in Jesus. 
But this isn't the type of righteousness alone that's being described here. It is also describing the type of righteousness that, that, uh, that includes our ethical conduct, that we do what is right. And the way we understand this is that both are connected, that it can't be separated. Righteousness that is imputed by grace through faith produces a righteousness that imparts good fruit in our lives. Righteousness that is imputed produces a fruit that, 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 that comes uh, from the Spirit's presence in our lives. This fruit is always in accordance with God's law, right? We don't have to guess what righteousness looks like. We know we've been told, the Scriptures tell us. But it isn't simply an external conformity to the standard. Jesus is going to show this again and again and again, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. It is a matter of our hearts. It is a matter of our hearts because it is a matter of worship. Doing not just the right things, but for the right reasons matters. Doing just the right things for the right reasons, even when no one's looking, matters. That may be the, the best litmus test. We have to admit we all like to well, we all do better when, when, when people are looking. We're all on our best behavior, right? Mom has told us that, and we, we've incorporated that into our, our, our Christian living. That's why we all slow down when we see the state trooper, even when we're not speeding. All right? We all do better when someone's watching. But it seems that we're more interested in being thought to be righteous than actually being righteous. So why do we do what we do? Again, I want to quote Ian Duguid. He, read, he says, For Christians, righteousness is not simply a matter of doing the right thing. It's a matter of doing the right thing as an act of worship to the Creator God who has revealed Himself to us in the Bible. If we are loving our neighbor as ourselves because it makes us feel good or because our society expects us to love our neighbor or because our parents would have wanted us to love our neighbor, then we're not doing it as an act of worship to God. We're doing it as an act of worship to ourselves or to society, or to our parents. We're worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a gift of God's grace toward us, that we would come to the well again and again to drink, that we would come to the table again and again to eat. Instead of promoting our own self-righteousness like the Pharisees, we humbly confess our neediness, our own transgressions. We lay down our own rights in meekness. And we know better. We know we're not righteous people. And so we don't have to fake it or pretend. We can become comfortable in being who we are, redeemed sinners who are saved by grace alone. We know we didn't bring anything to the table at salvation, and we don't contribute anything in the process now. Instead, we see that the righteousness that is being produced in our lives, even that is a gift of God to work and to will in us according to His good pleasure. And as we see and recognize it for the gift that it is, He gives us more and more a desire to have it. Now, what does this do in our hearts? Every one of us thinks this, even if we don't say it. But we're all scared to death that grace is going to make us or make someone else usually a lazy Christian. That it will produce some kind of spiritual laziness. But grace does not. And why? Because the power of the gospel is not in the person. The power of the gospel is the power of God. And God has promised to begin what he started or to finish what he started. 
and to bring to completion what he began. So the power of the gospel is the power of God. And so if he has imputed his righteousness in us, then by the Spirit he will produce the fruit. Do we strive? Do we labor? Do we fight? Yes. But as we look back, we see all along it was by God's grace that we did these things. And it is to his glory that he accomplished this, accomplishes this in us. So the promise of this beatitude then is satisfaction. Like the other promises, we do know this blessing in this life in part. But a day is coming when we will know it in full. Complete satisfaction. No more want. No more need. No more unmet desire. Now at this day, this time of the day, we're hungry no matter what. But I know with the smells and so forth, we're all especially hungry. We know what it, it is to want. Our tummies growl and, you know, we're thinking about it. And we know that in a few minutes, minutes that that want will be met. But by this evening, if not by tomorrow morning, our want will return. There will be a need and a desire for more. All of us long for the final fulfillment that we will have in heaven. But for now, that desire and that need for more works to our benefit. Just like our bodies telling us it's time to eat, it's time to drink, this spiritual hunger and thirst reminds us that we need to return to the spring of living water, that we need to come back to the table of the king and eat from where the bread of life comes from again and again. We need sustenance physically. We need sustenance spiritually to return to the source in worship, thanking him and asking for more. Let me read to you the words, some words that we're about to sing. Sometimes it helps to hear these words read before we sing them because of the way that we sing. We may not always engage our brains, but let me encourage you to think about these words. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace which, like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the world's or the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Let's pray. Father, would you cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for solid joys and lasting treasure, to only be known because we've trusted in you. I pray today that for, for those who are here who have yet to do that, that you would draw their hearts to you. You would bring them to salvation, that you would show them where true satisfaction comes from. And Lord, for those of us who walk by faith, would you continue to do the work in us that we would see our poverty of spirit, our spiritual bankruptcy, that we would then mourn over our sin and for the sins of others in this world as we see its effects, that we would truly be meek, you would guard us against self-righteousness, against using the power that we have to get our way or to... Uh, make our own reputation known. You would make us others-centered instead. And Lord, would you increase our hunger and thirst for righteousness? Make us long for what is truly right, truly pleasing to you. And Lord, in that longing, then produce it by your grace in us. We give you thanks because we know the promise. 
that you will finish what you've begun, that you will bring to completion what you've started. We long for that day, Lord, and until that day comes, would you give us strength and courage and diligence to trust you and to obey you as we walk in this life. To your praise and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand now and